Welcome to Music Crush, a new music podcast hosted by Flute New Music Consortium. I'm Elizabeth Robinson. And I'm Nicole Reiner. This interview was with Michael Janice, the composer of The Highest Arm for Flute and Electronics. We had a great chat today. What were some things you particularly enjoyed hearing about, Nicole? That was such a fun conversation, and I loved I felt like there was a, this, this theme kind of threaded through all of their answers, really. Um, this theme of service and such a, such a kindness and a generosity. I feel like, you know, one of the things we talked about was just how many different hats Michael wears as a teacher, as a, as a performer, as a, you know, an audio engineer and as a composer. And it seemed like, what kept coming up again and again was their desire to support other groups or help other groups. And even, even in their K through five general music teaching, you know, that sense of being so excited to be able to teach important things to, to their classes. So I thought that was really inspiring. I enjoyed some of our conversation about identity. It's not particularly often that you get to have such a a thought provoking and, um, thoughtful conversation about different identities within society and within the music community uh, and then turn around and also talk about teaching elementary school students more from michael yeah let's get to it michael janice he they is a composer educator tenor and multi-instrumentalist they are also the winner of fnmc's 2022 composition competition in the flute and piano or electronics category With work converging in social justice, principles of sound, and contextual human experience, Michael's work asks how artistic, sonic, and educational mediums can best reveal new understandings of the self, and how the presence of intersectionality in our thinking can be fostered through our interactions with music. Janice is a co-producer on The Choral Commons, the founding member of Voices 21C, They hold degrees in music education, vocal performance, and music composition, having studied with Timo Andres, Hannah Lash, and Missy Mazzoli. And they teach private violin, piano, and voice lessons in New York City. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be here. And thank you, um, sincere thank you for choosing my piece. I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah. You know, the cool thing is, I mean, I, I was super excited about your piece, which we're about to dive into just personally. But... But, you know, the great thing is that, you know, these competitions are all membership driven. And so you got a mm. whole bunch of votes from a whole bunch of people, hand, hands down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like, I mean, Elizabeth, you pointed this out to me too, but I feel like it was, it was a really strong category. We got some really, some really nice finalist pieces this year. I was excited about all of the finalists this year. Yeah. I am excited to get to know the winning piece as well. Yeah. So, so let's dive into it. Yeah. I mean, cause, cause the highest arm, um, definitely won the popularity contest despite some really <laughs> stiff competition. Um, so your winning piece, the highest arm for amplified flute and fixed electronics has a very interesting backstory. Can you tell us about it? Mm, yeah. And I, at the time when I was writing that piece, um, this is for contextualization for folks who don't know, it's like fall 2020, right? We're we're pre-vaccine um, mm. for a lot of freelancers, like unemployment benefits um, are not around, <laughs> like right. outdoor dining is coming back or no, it's it's coming up for the first time actually um, for folks who didn't have it before. 
So like I'm working a coffee job <laughs> in um, in my neighborhood. Like I am taking a semester off of grad school. I'm not trying to do Zoom school. And like there is um, like a context that like it feels so far away from now actually, but it was only a couple <laughs> of years ago. Like, right, right. And like there, there were just a lot of intersecting realities that were sort of mushing into each other at the time and. I think like the probably the program note is the most concise, but um, there are the racial justice protests that went on in the summer that are still continuing into the fall. Um, one group specifically that I um, was playing uh, playing music for protests with at the time we were weekly with. Um, this group called the Stonewall protests, which focused specifically on um the state of emergency black trans women are in still you know that are that's often shadowed out entirely when we say say his name say her name um to actually fully embed um not only topics of race but topics of gender and gender variance um these are intersecting struggles that often result in a lot of people being completely um erased in in conversations where they should be at the center really and these groups are still continuing to gather and to to be in the street and at the same time a lot of the primarily white people who left the city to march 2020 towards suburbia towards um places they consider home still like they're coming back because they're thinking oh it's a little safer and um and we're seeing them out at brunch <laughs> and and some of them are i think it's fair to say expecting a pre-covid new york um, to continue being their theme park, um, to continue being the place that they can enjoy. And this piece is primarily through the electronics, trying to combine all of these different perceptions of what the present day is right now at the time. Like there are, there are people who are trying to get the old reality. There are people who are trying to completely abolish the old reality and commit to taking care of each other better. And to have it all sort of mushed together at that time um, was really disorienting and, and still continues to be, I think, the way we navigate COVID now, especially it's, you can almost feel yourself pushing up against another person's idea of what um, normal is or what acceptable is or what safe is, hmm. what, um, what caring is. Like, it's, it's an odd thing to describe maybe in words but this piece is hopefully a a nice snapshot of what was going on in fall 2020. Wow, well put. Yeah. Yeah, and your your experience in New York is um I, as you're describing it, I I'm thinking about things that I've read about in the New York Times or seen on the news living out in Colorado and teaching in southern Wyoming. Mm. My experience has been much more simplistic in a way. I think for for a lot of us, you know, our regions have um, informed to some extent what our experience has been. Uh, I've just been driving around Wyoming, you know, working with uh, public school flute players in middle schools and high schools, and it's there's no memory of COVID ever happening. Right. Getting hugged by seventh graders, no masks, everyone's shaking hands, you know. Uh, yeah. And so I, I appreciate the complexity of what you're describing, actually. I appreciate that it was that complex somewhere anyway. Yeah, and I, like what you're saying really matters. Like there, 
like the, I, I don't think we've ever been more aware of the sheer volume of people we're nearby yeah. that are nearby, right? Like, and how much that actually matters. Um, like there are millions of us in New York, like all on top of each other basically. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And there, there's that ridiculous graph, right? Of Manhattan where like the lower half of Manhattan is the entire population of South Dakota. Oh, and really? The, and the upper <laughs> half is the entire population of North Dakota. Like, wow. like, like when we think about how that actually plays out, you know, like I, I do some work in in rural areas and and yeah you know like I think about it and I'm like okay the amount of people I'm seeing all week right now is the same amount of people I see on a subway car for 10 minutes sometimes like it, it's just different it's a really different um so the way we gather and the amount of people that are involved in the experiences that are either different or similar that everyone there brings into the space like that's really foundationally shaped how we've moved through the past couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking yeah. of people and the last couple of years, um, as we were getting to know your piece, The Highest Arm, um, and as members were voting on The Highest Arm, they were listening to the recording that you submitted. And mm -hmm. they didn't necessarily know that they were listening to a mutual friend of FNMC's and yours, um, but that recording was performed by Yoshi Weinberg. How do you two know each other? Yes. Um, and it's funny because I, I didn't necessarily know that um Yoshi knew y'all or like um I didn't realize that was a mutual connection but we actually <laughs> met just before I wrote the piece I think um we were in a, a performance together that was outside in a park in Brooklyn um it was done by the Black Box Ensemble and Sound Off Music for Bale we were performing Feminine by Julius Eastman which is um a pretty long um not aleatoric work, but it, it's it's um, it was a beautiful endeavor for the time. And I first met them when they were standing behind me at that performance. And then I think really the next day or a couple of days afterwards, um, this group in the city uh, called Chamber Queer was hosting this like gathering in the park of musicians just to hang out really. Um, and Yoshi was there and and um, and yeah, so those I don't know that 48 hours um, or so that's when I came to know them. And um, I think they were one of the first flutists who looked at this piece, really, just to make sure that it wasn't um, alarming, or, <laughs> 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 or what I'm asking for makes sense. And, um, and they're like, it's admiring how deeply committed they are to the flute and mm -hmm. into the practice. And mm -hmm. it's just been a pleasure to know them really, that was, it was really around the same time with the piece that I met them. That's really fantastic. It's such a small world in so many yeah. ways. Mm. Yeah, it's nice when it's a pleasant small world. I remember listening to that recording as I was as I was doing my voting and I was like, oh, this flute playing is so beautiful. I want to know who this is. And then, you know, I was able to look it up after after it went and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Yoshi. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. That's I, love, great. I love that you two get to work together. That's awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. I always, I maybe this is childish of me, but I always get excited and drawn to intriguing titles that I don't know the meaning of. So I'm gonna throw one at you, Michael. You have another chamber piece for flute, clarinet, violin, and cello that you wrote back in 2017 in the before times called Grays at Pause Then Fired. I put him all into my arms. Oh yeah. Tell us about this piece. Um, <laughs> what does it for mean? For sure. And like, I, I think I meant to say this when you asked about the winning piece, like 
or in this case, the highest arm, like, I think I should have addressed that, you know, like, what does that even mean? Um, but I think about that as like, you know, a gesture towards power, like who has the most resources, who is the most visible, who is the loudest, who yeah. is the highest on the, on the ladder. Um, but also from like a perspective of resistance, like whose fist is raised the highest, this idea of arms, mm. um, you know, like it can be all of those things. Like, I think titles are important. Yeah. Like they, they, like they don't have to mean just one thing. They can mean many things, but um, yeah, this piece is Grace at Pause and Fire is definitely from the before times. Um, but I, <laughs> like I was teaching public school music full time at that point, and I just wanted I hadn't really considerably written for woodwinds at all. You know, like I had written for them before, but nothing that I was like, it was mostly exercises or things that are kind of more practical, and I wanted to. Um, to actually do it, quote unquote, you know, uh, and have and have a piece for this instrumentation and Hubby Music, the same instrumentation that this is written for, they were having this commission proposal for a residency that ended up getting canceled, I believe, or there was just some logistical hoo-ha and they didn't actually get to accept any new work. But once I heard that, I'm like, I still want to write this, I think. So um, it's, I didn't set this text perhaps, but I used it as like a platform to move forward with. Um, there is this E.E. E. Cummings poem that sort of recontextualizes the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and he does a really great job at it. it I think the title is um, A Man Who Had Fallen Among Thieves. That's the title of E.E. E. Cummings' mm -hmm. version. And I use the Good Samaritan story basically to just track how the instruments behave with each other, you know, like the sort of programmatic journey they go on. And, um, and it was very fun. I think uh, the the Boston New Music Initiative read it um, in the before times. As far as a forward-facing premiere, I don't think it's actually had one actually now that you mention it, but um, <laughs> but I hold that piece dear to my heart. It was really foundational in a lot of ways for me to, to write that. Wow, good to know, especially listeners who might be looking for some new to them mixed chamber music. So it's mm -hmm. easily found on your website. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Beyond these two, and you know, you've got some more orchestral works listed on your website as well, but beyond this chamber piece and the highest arm, the flute doesn't currently seem to take up a lot of space in your catalog so far. Are mm. there any other flute-centric plans in the works? Or and you can combine these questions however you wish. Um, but <laughs> I, I also always wonder as a as a flutist, you know, what what are your thoughts on writing for flute? What's challenging? What do you enjoy doing? What would mm. you like to do with it in the future? Totally. Yeah. Um, there, this, this past, uh, this latter half of this year, I think the past few months I've been working on a wind quintet with oh, electronics. Cool. So that's been, it's been just sort of really a passion project. I, I've, I have a brass quintet with electronics. I have a string quartet with electronics and I'm like, I should just do a wind quintet with electronics. And it makes, it feels kind of like it makes sense. And I want to step into that right now. Um, so that's going to be read probably in December with a couple of groups. Uh, I'm expecting like a final draft to be something like early 2023. Um, but I'm really looking forward to how that's shaping up. And I also have this Piero piece that is not done, but I was writing it right when like the Delta variant came to be and like, and I really struggled with more than like one performer <laughs> or no performers. Like I, those were my ideals when like variants were really in our, in our faces, right. just cause it was, <laughs> It was like, if I don't have humans to 
write this for who want to perform it like you know like when i just go in that direction like, like i did with the wing quintet I'm like i just kind of want to do this um I, as a composer i think i actually really struggle with that it's like i, I want human beings with with tendencies and tastes to write for and mm. like the promise that it'll actually be performed without you know um the conditions that like variants bring about that are so limiting or kind of feel so bleak at the time for at least a few weeks or a couple months right so yeah there, there was a point where i said you know that pr piece it is going to be on pause and like you know someday I, I send it when folks are looking for work proposals for pure ensembles but i don't there was a point where i said i'm not going to push this and it's um you know it's it's kind of frozen as is right now but i i look forward to it or whether i chuck it and just do something entirely different i look forward to a pr piece someday yeah. um but the flute like I, I don't personally play the flute but i but I really like writing for it. You know, it. I, I think I most composers gravitate towards instruments they know how to play. So like reconciling that relationship where I don't, um, I know that what I'm writing is possible, but it is not possible for me. Like I've tried to play <laughs> some of the music I've written, but like, I feel like I want to pass out. Like I just, I don't have the stamina to play the flute. So um, I like it. It's, it's it, it lives in a different box for me than the instruments I know, of course, but um, but I enjoy it. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm going to pass out too, Michael. So. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for uh, your condolences at this time. <laughs> the solidarity. <laughs> We've all been there. No. That's great. In in a more general sense, um, what do you want performers to know about your perspective as the composer of the music that they're playing? Mm. Right. Yeah. And. I think especially for the piece that won here, or like when I'm assuming, you know, the folks who are primarily listening to this conversation are are coming at this from that piece, right? The like I think a lot about the idea of proximity work when when I have a piece of music on the table. Like there's like there are rooms that we are in and there are rooms that we're not in. And sometimes we've chosen to be in those rooms. Sometimes people with more power than us have put us in those rooms on purpose or told us that those rooms are the ones we want to be in or the ones we're de like destined to be in some of us are told to be in you know undergrad degrees and master's degrees some of us are told to be in prisons like there are different rooms that we end up in and the people we are allowed to talk to who are easiest to talk to um you know those are those conditions are all circumstantial and like a piece like the highest arm um especially this uh this other version of it that um is included with the piece the, um, the highest arm is also used as the finale of a sound walk i've written about um police brutality in new york and the the original version like i kind of alluded to this idea of like brunch and um you know people gathering sort of to be served and then there are people in the street gathering for a very different reason, like this idea of rooms and proximity and how they brush up against each other. It can be kind of ugly. It can be kind of uncomfortable. Um, the Soundwalk version of this piece, you know, you don't have these, uh, if you've heard the piece, like the electronics voices are, there's like this kind of like whiny customer and this whiny waiter. 
they're like sort of in the background sort of um having disparate surface level kind of painful conversation with each other about the menu but in the sound log version like that's replaced with anonymous testimony and like footage of police violence and like that's just a very different room from the room that performers and composers you know like ivory towers that we usually have to go to 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 be better at what we do right like we're not thinking about the street so much and like if we see the street if we see um violence quote unquote as people who are privileged enough to be in ivory towers like maybe it's in movies or tv shows um it's not really in real life but but this is real life um which i think is important to note um and when we put that when we put this piece in a concert hall or put these uh, topics in a concert hall like we're intentionally removing the, the big 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 proximity that's in place by design um we allow people to engage with the topics of, of American policing, of race, and where they might just be engaging with like a Mozart quartet or, you know, like something that is maybe, you know, just as honorable as far as like craft and artistic discipline goes, but not necessarily as engaged with what is going on outside of the building. Um, so, so that comes to mind as, as far as perspective goes, like, we we kind of don't get to uh, you know absent-mindedly just choose this piece and these topics and um and assume they don't engage in a conversation with what's going on around us like to put this piece in a concert hall is um is a choice or it, it can be a departure in some ways from what we might put there instead hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, it is. It is funny, particularly to, you know, go to a recital and hear maybe a piece like this. And there, there are more and more really interesting, thought-provoking pieces that we're getting to play, which I love. But then you'll hear that back to back with, you know, Schubert arpeggione or something. It's just like, what, <laughs> sure. what were, what were you thinking here? What world are we in? Um, yeah. And I think we get pulled in a lot of directions too. I mean, I've, I've certainly been guilty of doing that at my academic institution because I feel like I'm I'm trying to play important music but then also model stuff that that my superiors who evaluate me would like to see me model right right it's like it's by design you know like it's not just um like there there's music like this but there's also the music that like you said that people consider as as the most valuable and like right. those the people who consider that have like they make decisions about your life and your job yeah so you can't just people yeah like you can't you can't just um you can't just subvert that all the time like there, there's this um like you mentioned in my bio this group that i work with a lot voices 21c they like we have yearly worked with currently and formerly incarcerated people and artists and it's the same kind of thing it's like to to perform with someone who's been incarcerated on stage or to have someone call in from a prison phone like you're putting you're kind of injecting another room into the room that you're in yeah. and like it's sometimes i mean especially for folks who are in colleges like sometimes it's the first time they've seen an incarcerated person ever sure it's sometimes the first time they've heard their voice and especially if they're like performing you know it it's sometimes the first time you you're able to humanize them you know like that to actually 
you know, like, like you said, we can't subvert who, what the people in charge of us think is important. But when we kind of really interrogate what we can do within our power, um, like music can be really, we can, I don't know, it's, it sounds a bit uh, militant, but we can really weaponize it in a way that is useful. Um, I think this piece can do that too. Yeah, I like that. Sounds helpful. I'm so I'm so interested to see what concerts look like 10 years from now. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I would love to see, well, I would love to see all kinds of things, but yeah, I mean, it, you, you bring up such interesting ideas about what, where we're coming from and where we're going and, and what, what purpose the concert stage might have in the future that is different from what we've, what we've been trained to think. Yeah. Yeah. And like, sometimes it sounds a lot harder than it actually might be. Yeah. Like, you know, there are a lot of well-meaning people who just don't know how to engage with these topics in, in rooms where they're not being discussed. And in 10 years or so, like, when people have more opportunities to do so and or at least some more scaffolding i don't know it to, to sort of come at it without any idea or any um body of people to converse with or like i don't know it, it can be kind of lonely and independent to do it sometimes or to to do this work and just sort of like out of the goodness of our hearts or like i don't know with earnest uh interest in doing this kind of work where we shape what concerts look like but um it's not always met with like sort of stone resistance from from the people in the room. Sometimes people are actually quite excited. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. You you mentioned uh, another group that you work with, and I wanted to talk about the the breadth of your bio. <laughs> because I got I got really excited and I also thought, oh dear, is is Michael okay? Like I guess the first question is do you need some Advil right now? Um, but let's just yeah. let's just back up and, and review a little bit. So the teaching page of your website lists private lessons, children's chorus, and K through five music. As you mm. as you mentioned earlier today, you're a tenor, you're a pianist, you have violin lessons listed as well, right? Mm -hmm. You're you've done audio and video engineer work. So again, I'm gonna throw a couple questions at you and you can, you can decide how you wanna combine them. But yeah. what, I, what I wondered as I read your bio was, how do you make space in your schedule to create despite all of these responsibilities? Hmm. And how, you know, conversely, maybe how do these activities help inform your compositional work in a unique way? Mm, right. It's really overwhelming when you list them off, Nicole. Yeah, I, yes, <laughs> I thought so too. You're amazing. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I, I think the past five years especially have been about balance, so just trying to strike good balance with, mm. with what I like to do. And like everything comes in phases. Like some 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 of these things are weekly in my life, like I'm weekly teaching or I'm uh you know, weekly, for example, like my weekly uh church appointment as as a singer you know like there, like there are some things that are scheduled that kind of way but there are other things on like a freelance basis that happen you know five or six times a year um like a specific gig on a certain instrument or like a commission type thing like it's not always all at once all of the time or like like there's a world where i could say like i get up at 5 a.m and I burn the candle at both ends and I'm always practicing every instrument that I play and my vocal technique is always ready to go at a moment's notice and it's like that's just no one does that. 
Like nobody can do that. Right. Like there's, but at the same time, we live in a um, a culture that really likes to think that we can, <laughs> and maybe we feel like kind of compelled to say, "Oh, I I can do all of that all of the time," and um, and just not just be honest. We're like <laughs> we're only one person. <laughs> like I would right. need a lot of Advil, right? So um, it just doesn't work that way. Um, but but on like a micro level all of these different things like you sort of suggested they do influence each other like if i'm my audio engineering work and my electronics design for example like anytime i work on one of those things i'm getting better at both of them i feel or i'm getting more comfortable at both and when you're in that kind of work like production work like when i go to write a large ensemble piece or i'm thinking about orchestration or ranging like i'm not necessarily thinking about like the lowest instruments and the highest instruments, but I'm thinking about like a frequency spectrum of like the lows, the mids and the highs of the sounds that like you might EQ in a production job or something. Like I think listeners um, who are also in that kind of work or, or work with sound design can probably empathize with that. But that's not like music theory knowledge or orchestration knowledge, it's just sort of overlap. Yeah. Anything, I, I'm so curious about the K, K through five music. <laughs> yes oh oh yeah, yeah. and I mean I because that's I... that's something that you know I think a lot of people sort of push away from like you, many people have a music education degree but then they they move on past that and do the fancy things and don't come right. back to that. but right. you're really uh when you're doing that you're really you're really working in the in the grassroots among yeah. the people kind of work right and I I love it I like I, I want to make that super clear I love working with kids I think that's actually probably one of my favorite things like lucky them I yeah I know because <laughs> there are there are a lot of people who would not would not say the same thing yeah. but um but it's like I love being like oh yeah I taught that kid what a quarter note is today or you know I, I taught <laughs> them how to feel pulse today mm. um and at least in my education degree I found that whenever I was in middle school or high school especially in this country like you're you're still teaching them what the quarter note is mm -hmm. or like at least with the way your curriculum design where your curriculum is designed where you actually have to insist that they know what a quarter note is because that's not exactly how music has to be taught per se but um based on your standards your district's priorities like you're always playing catch up in some kind of way um with older uh students and i, I liked the idea that oh i can actually just teach them right the first time um <laughs> and you know the teacher that gets them after me might you know, might just totally not reinforce those concepts. And by the time they get to high school, they're gonna need to know again. And you know, whatever it is in vain, but you know, I, that's like really circumstantial and a, a bit of a spiral. So I'm not so worried about that all the time. But right. when I went for my master's, which was right before the pandemic started, I, I was teaching full-time, but I obviously had to stop for that. And, um, I'm not teaching full time right now. I think I have mostly individual students at the same age level, some some group settings as well. But I'm not um, like when I was writing Grey's Up, Pause and Fire, and I was like writing full time. It took me months to finish pieces that now take you know a few weeks maybe. Mm -hmm. like, like it's just sure. a different, like I said, striking balance. Yeah. Um, but I struggled with that deeply in school as well. In my master's, it was like there are no kids. <laughs> it's a bunch <laughs> of like. You know really stuffy adults and um <laughs> it's so boring like huh. it's um 
and there were some great adults too. I don't want to chop it up to that, but like, but as far as like the playfulness in your day to day, it's just so different. Um, but striking balance is, um, like I found to honor my creative work, I really needed to do that. I couldn't just teach full time. I mean, I, I, I loved it, but it also felt like I needed way more Advil or I had to be seven people, which is like the public teachers, the public school teachers plight. So it, it's impossible yeah. to have balance in those settings is true. Well, your teachers or your students sound very lucky. This would be a, you know, if, if Advil's listening. Yeah, we're not sponsored by them, but. Yeah. Um... But we could. I would like to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a few grants you wouldn't have to apply for, I guess. If, uh... <laughs> Well, you've kind of touched on this a little bit, uh, but the next question we were wanting to ask was, uh, what do you think the biggest challenges in your profession or in your case professions are right now? Um, and does that tie in in any way to challenges you think are facing classical music generally? Mm. Right, yeah, we did, we did touch a bit on this. Um, and this other, um, this other group I do work with extensively that's done a lot of podcasts, um, especially during the pandemic called the Coral Commons has really interrogated this from like a choral perspective. But like you said, like the, some of the problems that might just be in the choral sphere are not just exclusive to that. I mean, like they, they, they permeate other parts of music and um, and on the topic of stuffy adults and institutions, like <laughs> this, uh, that's on my mind right now, at least to theirs. Like we are all, some institutions are thankfully branching out from this um, in really beautiful ways, but um, those that are on the more traditional side, like we are put in a training program for a job that existed in the 19th century. Mm. You know, like we are like, you are a performer, like you play the flute. And if you're more than that, that's too complicated. And like, it's very Western obviously, but like, um, this isn't even just like a classical music problem. This is like a working class problem. Like you can't just have one job with, that's full-time with benefits and also afford rent. Um, you know, like you are job juggling. You are, if you're just a flutist, if you're just a violinist, like there, the world is demanding that you be sort of many, many, many things. Um, but at the same time, if you are, like there are people in power in the arts industries and, and in other industries that if you are not just an expert at one thing, they kind of find you to be untrustworthy. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're like, oh, well, you're not always doing that. So, you know, I want a person who is fully committed to the flute. Um, and if you're not, then, uh, you know, someone else, whoever, this other person who says they're fully committed to the flute is probably uh, more of what we need. You know, but it, like this, this, these realities just kind of don't exist together. Like, we can't just grow up uh, or move through the world in a job that was around 200 years ago um, or, or the idea that that's going to be our day to day. Um, so that we did kind of talk about that a bit, a bit earlier, but um, what, what we're trained to do and then the field on the outside, I think higher ed is definitely trying to grapple with that, the difference between those two realities, but like that's also just the fact that we have to go to uh, you know the amount of money we pour into this to get whatever we get out of it um the amount of uh generational work that is required of the people that came before us and our families and um the safety nets we need to do this kind of thing um it creates a real barrier to access for people just to engage with arts um as something they do in their lives it, 
the whole structure is um, is really limiting, or that the people that you see graduating um, and the people that you see who want to be uh, artistic, even just in humble and completely valid ways in their lives, like it's um, it's a very small uh, percentage of the amount of people who could be artistic um, or or just get a music degree because they feel like it and not because they have to make it their entire lives or um, the way it's structured is uh, kind of bizarre. That's a great understatement, kind of. Bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're all just sitting here nodding yeah. on the podcast like, where like, no one can see our faces. Like, yeah, so yeah. Many, so many old examples from the past 20 years and conversations being had with, with students and everything. Yeah, kind of mm. converging there. Yeah. Yeah, you wrapped it all up there, Michael. Yeah, I for years I struggled. I, I was just like the the annoying nag in the room saying, "Can we please start teaching some music entrepreneurship classes? Can we mm. please start teaching some music entrepreneurship classes at my school for years?" And even that term feels like you know it becomes a gimmick or something. But but there can be real substance behind it. Right. And it's, right. it's trying to get at that. Yeah, you, you can be a great musician, but if all you can do is lock yourself in a windowless room and play, you know, good luck to you. And I had, <laughs> I had, yeah, I had, um, you know, a colleague who is a, a stunning musician. I mean, truly a, a stunning, stunning player. And she's about 15 years older than me, you know, so she was a full professor in this meeting and, and had made it, I guess, in the old school way with the recordings and the international touring career and things. And she said, right. they don't need more distractions, Nicole. They just need to practice more. Right. Our students don't practice enough. And yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's such a disconnect between what we're trying to get that. And I, I think in our generation and younger, all of us are, are more willing to talk about, you know, I, I was sold this very simplistic picture in school and I, I got a lot out of school you know I, I want to be grateful but right. man the, the number of things I've had to do since graduating to actually piece together a career that nobody mentioned you know it's just it's <laughs> irresponsible it's, yeah. it's just flat out irresponsible like, just is. go practice more and then something magical will appear before you no yeah and, and okay. the, what you said about distraction I think that's a great way to put it or that, that as far as the problem is concerned like like when I was an undergrad, I like I was in voice lessons, I was in violin lessons, I was in orchestra, I was in choir, I was in education, mm. like, and not every teacher, but some teachers really like the best they could muster was tolerance <laughs> at right. that, you know, like it was mostly disdain, but because it was a distraction to them. It was like, oh, you're not able to, to learn this aria all of the time now, yeah. like you, you but my violin teacher, a couple others as well, I want to be mindful of that, but my violin teacher, especially, she really encouraged that I do all of these things. Like, and I, like that has stayed with me. Uh, like I carry that with me uh, profoundly, like it, to actually be affirmed yeah. that it's not a distraction. Amazing. That, Like in some of the lessons I had with her, it's like, I learned more about my voice, like my, my singing voice in my violin lessons um, some weeks than I did in my voice lessons. Like there, like it is a Western philosophy that everything should be in boxes um, yeah. or that disciplines don't cross over um, because it's not as easy to discuss or it's not as simplistic or it's not as uh, packageable, but, but it's not a distraction. Like if, if you're feeling called to like, I don't know, play the bassoon, 
like whatever play the bassoon like yeah and and in my education degree i that was the only environment where i got a methods course on every instrument family you know mm. i actually got to learn the physics of the bassoon and the flute like and that yeah. if it wasn't for that the piece that won here probably wouldn't even be here like but composers didn't get that you know mm. educators mm -hmm. did and so like of course not one person's experience is not everybody's but having these distractions can be really enriching sometimes for what someone <laughs> thinks they're a distraction for or whatever like it actually makes you better yeah well that was a great segue into the next question i want to ask you and this is something that we like <laughs> to ask everybody in some form maybe maybe it'll stay in this vein or maybe not but what is your advice for composers just starting out right now mm. yeah and i there, there are a few teacher friends who uh, teach some composers classes that hand this question to me mm, mm -hmm. for their students. And like, there's a lot I could probably say, but I think practically um, for folks who are, especially for folks who are using like notation software or like mm -hmm. thinking about composing in that situation, get out of the notation software. <laughs> really? Yeah just get out of it i mean learn how to use it of course but like i mean we need to be able to notate legibly at, at a point mm -hmm. but as far as like the creative process goes like don't be an editor first you know mm -hmm. like i think every composer who sort of like downloaded the free version of finale when they were in like middle school or high school or you know like you end up writing music that only sounds good in the playback feature of these programs right. and um <laughs> Because I mean, in a way, if you're alone, like that's the only way you get to hear it. If if your inner ear isn't really developed, and it probably shouldn't be when you're that young, depending on whatever you've had access to, maybe it's um, different. But like, if you put your favorite piece into Sibelius or Finale and hit play, you're gonna hate it. Like, it, it's just not <laughs> a, not a parameter that makes sense um, yeah. to write for. Like when I when I started writing on real paper when I started writing, you know, like at the piano with my voice memo app running on record or something like when you really put the music into your body. I feel like you get somewhere different. Um, or at least get somewhere that those programs maybe can't get you. Um, they can be really inspiring, especially like, you know, you have this program where, oh, I can put any notes in here and then it'll play it back to me. That's kind of cool. And like, that's definitely cool um but it's it's also really limiting if you really uh if you're if you end up writing to that to that to have that end goal be like the pinnacle of your satisfaction with a piece like oh it sounds really great right now when i hit play and rather than oh this this can go to my friend who plays the flute or you know i have a friend who, a friend who plays this instrument maybe i can like make some food for them or knit for them and be like you know please help me with this idea or i want to write this piece for flute oh do you want to play or like if you make it a human activity um, or when you make it a human activity, uh, I think it's a lot more rewarding than hitting play or um, having it be such an isolating experience. Sometimes it's necessary to work alone, of course, but, but it can't be the end of, um, of your music. It, it, you know, if you just want to catalog and shelf everything you do that, um, you know, without a premiere or a human attached to it, you know, if that's something you, you're fine with, maybe like that's totally okay. But if you're looking to get out of that, um, 
yeah, getting it into your body is actually um, is something I think about a lot, just different means of making the music real. Wow. Yeah. Um, I guess switching gears to another question we like to ask everybody to end things out. Um, what are three pieces, what are three pieces you are listening to right now? Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, there, well, the church I work at is doing Bach Cantata 33. So that's been in my head for a while. <laughs> sure. <Right. laughs> Whether it's, I mean, that's like a really traditional answer, I guess, which is maybe not. It's the thing you're listening like to composer. right now. Yeah. <laughs> no. Alongside, you know, whatever else. Um, but that is one. Um, Bjork just dropped her new album with clarinets about mushrooms called Fasora. And that, Whenever we get a new Bjork album, it feels like Christmas. So that's that's been in my head a lot. Um, and also, there is um, this Brooklyn composer, Oh Young. Um, they came out with this ambient work called Imagine Naked. It's this album of like of ambient instrumental music, and it is just. It came out maybe in I want to say like April or May, and. It has just been like a sponge for like my sorrows and my joys. I have that on like every other day, practically. It's just like, it's not addicting, but it's, um, it's just beautiful. So like I, when I'm thinking about what I'm listening to, that um, there usually is like a token ambient work that is just like on my commute or like during my work or during nothing, during stillness, like um, that, that album has been, um, I don't want to say in that slot, but I've just been listening to it maybe too much. It's just really beautiful. <laughs> That's awesome. I love this question. I always, you all are helping me develop my library. I always hear new answers. Man, That's great. I like that Bach and Bjork showed up in the same sentence. I think that- And they should, as they should. I um, think they'd be very happy. <laughs> right, right. Michael Janice, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. All of us, thank you so much. Um, and again, really sincere thank you for choosing the piece. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Music Crush. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support the podcast, read show notes, and learn more about FNMC by visiting www.flutenewmusicconsortium.com. Support for this podcast comes in part from the Flute New Music Consortium. FNMC serves as a catalyst for collaborations between contemporary flutists and composers by commissioning new works, amplifying select recent works, organizing simultaneous premieres, and encouraging repeat performances of all FNMC-sponsored works. To learn more, visit www.flutenewmusicconsortium.com today.